Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Alexandre O. Philippe. He's a filmmaker's filmmaker, and that's not flattery so much as his job description. He's written and directed numerous award-winning films and documentaries, most of which explore the works of influential filmmakers. His most recent film, 7852, is a documentary about the iconic shower scene from Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and was screened at several other festivals, and is the first feature-length investigation into the art, craft, and influence of a single movie scene. Alexandre Ophelippe has a few similar films in production, including a detailed look at William Friedkin's landmark blockbuster The Exorcist, and an origin story about Ridley Scott's Alien. His previous films include Doc of the Dead, a film about the resilience of zombies in popular culture, and The People vs. George Lucas, a documentary that asks the question, who truly owns Star Wars, the man who created it, or the fans who worship it? Philippe holds a master's degree in dramatic writing from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts and is creative director at Exhibit A Pictures. Alexandre O'Philippe was recently in Bloomington to preside over screenings of Doc of the Dead and 7852 and to lead a master class on the filmmaking techniques of Alfred Hitchcock. While he was here, he joined IU Cinema Director John Vickers for a conversation in the WFIU studios. Alexander O'Philippe, welcome to Profiles. Thank you. Now we have, uh, I think, a lot to get through here in the next <laughs> 60 minutes. Um, right. So uh, I'm going to just jump right in. You've completed seven feature films, uh, mm-hmm. all of which in some way dissect some aspect or phenomenon of pop culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've even called yourself a pop culture geek. <laughs> so so why, why does pop culture matter? You know, I think pop culture is one of those things that actually tends to unite people. And in this day and age when we all feel very divided, I think it's probably more important now than it's ever been. What I love about pop culture is, to give you an example, the song Gangnam Style, you know, when it was a thing, um, you could go to Korea and not speak the language and you can do the dance and people will laugh and they will connect with you. And and that's what pop culture does. And it's very strange to me that we tend to dismiss pop culture and say, oh, well, it's just pop culture, when in fact so many of us are actually affected by it and we love it and it makes us happy. So I think we have to kind of stop thinking that things like that don't matter, you know, especially in a world where what we deem important is what divides us. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. I guess the question could be, um, does all pop culture matter? But it does to people. I mean, some people. So it doesn't become pop culture maybe unless it does. Yeah. You, you had an interesting... Um, definition for pop culture. Is it something that you kind of carry with you and would like to rattle off? No, I'm not even sure what you're talking about. <laughs> well, this is, um, you partook in a TED Talk, uh, yeah. I think, a number of years ago, and your definition was a universal language in all its seemingly trivial glory that manages to make us dream and smile and connect across racial, social, and political divides. Mm-hmm. It's part of our fabric. It says something about you or mm-hmm. about us. I think that's actually pretty profound. Well, thanks. I mean, well, I mean, you know, it's funny. I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even remember that. But, but yeah, I mean, I think you know, cinema obviously can at its best also function that way. And 
yes, obviously, pop culture is a big, important part of my life. And, and you know, I think the early films that I made were more about pop culture than they were about cinema. Now I make films more about cinema, but but specifically films that have had an impact on culture and and cinematic moments that have transformed not just the cinematic landscape, but also our pop culture. And obviously the shower scene is one of them. The uh, chest burster scene in Alien is one of them. I mean, there are these moments that transcend cinema and that have come to really, in, in many ways, change our lives. And we'll get to those in just a moment. Uh, so you spent about the first 20 years of your life in Switzerland. What was your exposure, say, to pop culture, to movies, to TV uh, as you were growing up? You know, I, as a kid, I um, I was very much a film buff. And I think this really was an extension of, you know, my, my dad at home in Geneva was, uh, I remember three things, actually. I remember he was watching Hitchcock films. Mm. That's obviously how I got my passion for Hitchcock films. He was also watching Columbo and uh, Starsky and Hutch. So <laughs> I never quite connected with Starsky and Hutch, but Columbo definitely, and obviously Hitchcock. But also, you know, growing up, I was watching a lot of movies on VHS, and I was fortunate that it was, it's actually a funny little story. My best friend in, um, you know, in my early to mid-teens was actually the son of Sophia Loren. Hmm. And so we went to school together, and he would go to the U.S. a lot and bring back these VHS tapes of movies that we didn't have access to in Switzerland. And so I remember spending weekends and going to their apartment in Geneva and watching all these films that we didn't have access to. Those moments is something that I remember very fondly. Sure. And I think it's difficult not to become a film fan when you, when, you, when you feel as a kid like you're watching the kind of stuff that your friends can't really, <laughs> can't even access, you know. So it's just something that became, yeah, became natural. Did you... Um since you had this stash of special things, right? I mean, were you sharing that with friends and other people as well? You know, I don't remember that. I was pretty, um, you know, I kept to myself a lot as a kid. I mean, obviously I, I had friends and, sure. you know, we'd do things like that. But I also remember watching movies by myself a lot. And I did organize these kind of film series, you know, mini film series for my parents and their friends. And every Sunday, you know, we'd watch a film on VHS and have a little kind of intro Q&A, you know, that kind of stuff. But I, I also remember very distinctly trying to dissect and understand how these movies worked. I remember spending a lot of time specifically on the head exploding scene in Scanners. I don't know how old I was, maybe 12 or 13, and just trying to like, you know, like figure out how is this done and, and going back and forth on my VHS player. You know, Those were the transformative moments that I think in retrospect – that's when I started really becoming a filmmaker who had an interest, obviously, in making movies about film. So it sounds like your parents were encouraging, you know, this dissection, this looking deeper at films and you know, maybe trying to understand and critique. Um, can I ask what your parents did for a living? Or what? Yeah, yeah. My, sure. my, well, both my parents were actually doctors, okay. uh, osteopaths. And I feel very fortunate that they never actually really censored anything. I mean, I was watching some pretty graphic stuff pretty early on. And, um, you know, I think they always felt that um, or trusted that I would process it in a healthy way. You know, I mean, it's funny because there are times now when, you know, my mom <laughs> you know, tells me that 
watching the shower scene over and over or watching the chestburster scene over and over, I mean, that must get to you. And I'm like, yeah, there are times when it does. So she says, you know, watch out. And she's right. But I think I, I, um, I've always been able to separate myself from the content. And even though I like to immerse myself in movies, you know, there's always a part of me that is reminded this is only a film and it's only a trick in a way. I think people who have trouble with horror films, usually they can't do that. And that must be really, really terrifying if you can't separate yourself from what you're watching, you know. But that said, you know, when you watch those scenes and those moments or those movies over and over and over again, there are times when you just have to step away, you know. 7852, watching that shower scene 20, 30 times a day, there were times when I was like, today I'm I'm taking a day off. Yeah, yeah, you just needed a a break from those images. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. I'm going to ask a two-part question. Uh, Do you have an earliest movie memory and then a a movie, say, then that affected you that, you know, maybe really influenced you towards becoming a filmmaker? The earliest movie memory that I had was about three years old. You know, I uh, walked in on my parents watching Eyes Without a Face, and that really left very strong images. Uh, you know, if you've, yeah. if you've <laughs> anybody who's seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely, and, yeah. But, you know, I didn't know, obviously, what it was. And then these images that kept coming back as I grew up, you know, occasionally, I'd remember it. And then, uh, you know, I think in my mid-20s, I watched Eyes Without a Face, not knowing really what it was. And then it all just came rushing back. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's the film. That's the film. And I remember now very distinctly, I can see myself, I can picture myself as a three-year-old, where I was, where the light was, where my mom was seated. I mean, it was a very clear moment or memory. So, So it's almost like movies kind of jolted me into consciousness in a way. And that's why I think they're so powerful to me. As far as movies that have had an influence on me in terms of wanting to make movies, I mean, I will probably always credit The Empire Strikes Back and that experience of watching it in a theater, again, in Switzerland, and just being completely flabbergasted at the I'm your father, you know, moment. And then going back home and playing with my Star Wars action figures and really essentially being living in Georgia's sandbox for a couple of years until Jedi came out. And thinking about stories, possible stories. And um, and I was also making these Super 8 um, action figure films. Uh, so your parents uh, gave you a camera? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I have no idea what happened to them. I would love yeah. to find them because uh, <laughs> that must be pretty funny to, to see. But, yeah, I remember shooting some stuff with my Star Wars action figures. and okay. on, I, on Super 8 yeah. instead of video at that time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That says a lot about your parents, right? Because... They were encouraging filmmaking at that time. And even buying a video camera would be doing the same thing. But Mm -hmm. it's a commitment to shoot and develop Super 8. Yeah, no, I mean, it's funny because I I think my parents have always wanted me to do what I wanted to do. And I think they've always trusted that I would find my path, which is, you know, it's a great gift to have parents like that because my path has not been straightforward. It's been very convoluted, in fact, and I thought I was going to be a golf professional for a while, and I became a golf professional and then realized, what am I doing? You know, I don't want to spend the rest of my life teaching people to hit a golf ball 100 yards. And so went back to my roots and, and, you know, went back to school and 
took some theater classes and wrote my first play and became a thought I wanted to be a playwright and went to a dramatic writing program and then reconnected with you know cinema through screenwriting essentially and and eventually became a filmmaker. So it's been a long, crazy, convoluted road. And when I see myself now and I get to not just make movies about movies that I love and that are important to me and that I think are important to culture, but also get to meet my heroes and talk to them and pick their brains. And and um, it's very strange to me to think back on this kid who was in Geneva who was you know, I, I mean, I, I remember, in fact, my friend Eduardo had the huge poster of Alien in his room. Wow. And that's, I, that's I, foreshadowing. Oh, yeah, no kidding, right? And every time I'd go there, you know, and, or, you know, go on sleepovers or whatever, you know, like that poster was sort of towering over me, you know. And I, I don't think I'd watched the film at the time, but I remember the, you know, in space, no one can hear you scream. Just reading that, your mind goes, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, I want to see this. I want to see this, but I'm so terrified of it, you know, I... The expectation, the anticipation of watching that film, you know. So to think that now, you know, I have a film that's premiering at Sundance about Alien on opening night uh, is um, – I, I don't even know how to put yeah. that into words, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, let's talk about what got you there. Yeah. So um, before – your alien film, you have 7852. Before mm-hmm. 7852, you have Doc of the Dead, which we're going to talk about as well. And before you have Doc of the Dead, you have uh, <laughs> <laughs> The People versus George Lucas as right. one of your films. Well, you have another film before that as well. Mm-hmm. I don't mind jumping right into Alien. Let's, I guess let's do that. So how did you come across this opportunity to make a film about Alien? And uh, how did this happen? You know, it's funny because uh, sometimes your initial impulse is wrong, but it's also right in a way because I wanted to make a film about the chestburster scene. Yep. I'm very intrigued by it. But I realized very quickly that you can't do with a chestburster scene what you can do with the shower scene in Psycho, you know, because if you start really sort of breaking down and deconstructing it, what you have really is a short film. And it has to be about more than that. But what really intrigued me was the fact that Ridley Scott showed to Giger a very specific triptych by Francis Bacon, which is three studies for figures at the base of a crucifixion, which is the defining triptych in Francis Bacon's career, which uh, in 1944 revolutionized the art world. And even though it is technically a crucifixion, what really those creatures are, are the Greek Furies. And the Greek Furies tend to come over and over and over in Francis Bacon's work. So I became really intrigued by this idea that consciously or unconsciously Ridley Scott was taking Giger in a certain direction. And, uh, you know, without giving the movie away, this opened the door to essentially make a mythological film about Alien and looking at these sort of origins, the roots of it, And so it's a film about Alien, but it's also very much a film about the resonance of myth and the resonance of cinema when cinema taps into myth and how this actually connects with our collective unconscious. It goes a lot deeper, I think, as an exploration of cinema than anything I've done before. And I'm really proud of that and really excited to see how audiences are going to react. Yeah, I I can't wait to see it. I mean, it sounds... 
very intellectual, but like all of your other films, it's going to be engaging. It's going to, to wrap the I, audience. I, I think it should be a very entertaining film. Yeah. yeah. I'm hoping so. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is filmmaker Alexandre O. Philippe, whose previous works include 7852, Hitchcock's Shower Scene, Doc of the Dead, and The People vs. George Lucas. He's speaking with John Vickers. The first feature-length documentary you made, I believe anyway, is Chick Flick, The Miracle Mike Story. <laughs> Uh, yes, you've done your research. And, yes. and, and the tagline, and, and I hope you're okay talking about it. Sure. But, uh, farm tragedy turns into carnival comedy. But it's about the headless chicken in 1945 in Colorado mm-hmm. who lived about 18 months without its head. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of on the carnival circuit and then made it into Ripley's, believe it or not. Um, That's right. How does that make it into your consciousness for a first feature-length film? It's really the film that started it all, in a way. Yeah. You know, at the time, I was fresh out of college. I was teaching screenwriting in Denver, and I had a really cool group of students. And one day, one of them comes to class and says, hey, have you heard about Mike the Headless Chicken? And I said, no, but I'm already intrigued, (laughs) you know, and tells me about this whole story about, you know, the Mike the Headless Chicken days, which is something that happens in Fruita, Colorado, which is about a four, four and a half hour drive from Denver. I'm Uh, sorry. There's a festival around? There's a festival. Oh, I didn't know that. There's a festival every year. And so my immediate, immediate reaction was, we're going to make a film about this. And I'd never made a film before. I didn't really know how to make a film. I was trained in dramatic writing, you know. But I knew how to tell a story. And I, you know, I I have, I, I think I've always had a very keen sort of visual sense anyway, you know. So we went and we all sort of pitched in a little bit of money. And I think we had about $5,000, you know. And we made this film, which... It's a crazy little film. I would not recommend it. I haven't watched it in years, but I watch it every few years, and I go, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty nuts. Uh, it's it's a documentary that plays like a mockumentary yeah. uh, that actually has semi-mockumentary, like true mockumentary elements to it, and it's made to look like a comic book. And, and um, what a great experience for your students, right? And and it gave you a taste for... And for me, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was I was learning, you know, we were all sort of learning together. And sure. I'm the one who kept making films after that, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, strangely enough. But it got into a few film festivals. You know, the first one was actually in Korea. We did a screening, you know, like a market screening at the Cannes Film Market uh, just to try and get some interest. And... The first people that came out of the screening were these programmers from this festival called BFAN, uh, which at the time was called PFAN hmm. in Korea, which is the Buchan International Fantastic Film Festival, which is the largest fantastic film festival in Asia, and I believe the second one in the world after after Sigis. And they loved the film. They invited me to Korea. And so my first experience as a filmmaker on the festival circuit was in Korea. Sure. And it was wild. It was, I was, you know, I taught them to do the chicken dance on stage. (laughs) And then people were coming to me, like people were stopping me on the street, like for autographs. And I get mobbed for like 10, 20 autographs every day. And I'm like, what is going on? This is so weird. This is so strange. And, and since then that festival has become a very important part of my life. I've been, 
um, seven times to that festival okay. now. Wow. I've had, uh, yeah, I've had six films there, and I've been on the jury once, and they tend to invite me pretty much every film that I make, and yeah. it's an amazing experience. So that kind of opened me to this whole world of of international film festivals, which I believe has been hugely instrumental over the course of my career. What did your parents think about your first choice for a film? You know, after having you uh, with them watch all of these great masterworks yeah. and then making a documentary <laughs> about a headless chicken. <laughs> my parents, especially my dad, has a very absurd sense of humor. So I think they were in a way sort of shaking their heads, but also it was sort of par for the course, you know. I was always doing, I think everything that I've done in my life has always been a little different, you know. Yeah. But they were super encouraging of that. And and it's really, so my dad passed away five years ago now. And in fact, he passed away a few months before I got to, you know, premiere Doc of the Dead. Okay. And, you know, one of the last conversations I had with him was actually about zombies. And he was joking about that. You know, he kept making jokes and, he was appreciating the fact that my career was starting to really sort of take off in making films about really strange and absurd, uh, you know, subject matters. I would be very curious to know what he would think of the stuff that I'm doing now, which is, it's different. It's yeah. still a continuation, but I think it's different. I'm a different kind of filmmaker now. You know, yeah. I think I'm finally starting to make the kinds of films that I know I'm capable of making and and I think I'm I'm still far from you know doing my best stuff. Yeah. Well, well, it seems like you're gravitating towards things that you're even more passionate about or really passionate about. And, and oh yeah. And yeah. I, I I know that uh, films and filmmakers in our private conversations already are you kind of live for those. It, it seems. So is is it okay to talk about the people versus George Lucas? Of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> you know I consider that probably your breakout film. It's a film yeah, that got a lot of attention, sure. and it's. We've already heard about your obsession with The Empire Strikes Back. So, so, so the film is about kind of the conflict between obsessive fans mm. and the creators who felt uh, the fans feeling betrayed by Lucas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you try to give, uh, I think, even-handed portrayal. I mean, you're showing his early work. And yep. what was the reception of this film like for you? And did it turn out the way you hoped it would? Well, I mean, in terms of reception, it was it was amazing. I mean, it was, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think it was definitely the breakout in the sense that this was the first film, even though I, you know, I, I had a period between 2006 and 2009, you know, I made three short films that did really well on the festival circuit. But it's a lot of effort to get a film, especially a short film, seen and to travel. And, you know, you have to send a lot of submissions. And, you know, this was the first film where suddenly now... I started getting contacted by festivals where, in fact, they waived their submission fees, uh-huh. where uh, sometimes they would even flat out invite the film without watching it. And I'm like, what is going on here, you know? And so that started a two-year tour. I mean, you know, it was mostly a year and a half, and then it started fizzling out. But I traveled with that movie for two years. Wow. You know, and I went, I mean, every corner of the globe with it. And it was wild to see... Pretty much every screening, there were always these fans that would come up to me and say, it was always the same line. It was like, thank you. It felt like therapy, Hmm. (laughs) you know, Uh, which is probably the highest compliment you can get from a Star Wars fan, you know, in in a way. And then, you know, oftentimes, of course, you know, fans showing up in costume. And um, I mean, I remember the screening in Mexico City at Ambulante, which is the festival of Gal Garcia Bernal. And he came to the screening and we were escorted to the stage 
with these like six armed guys yeah. <laughs> and uh, there were all these like fans in costume on stage and then 2000 people in the audience oh like outdoor theater I mean, these really mo- moments that are just completely unforgettable. Yeah, yeah. that's great. <laughs> yeah. So the footage from the online group film, the fan-made film. Um, oh, uh, Star Wars Uncut? Yeah, Uncut. Yes. Um, did you have any trouble using uh, footage from that being that it's an online source or? No, we had uh, we contacted each of those uh, filmmakers and had them, uh, you know, sign a release, okay. essentially. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. And, you know, part of the fun of The People versus George Lucas is it's a participatory documentary, you right. know. In those days, those didn't really exist. But I felt that the only way to make a film about The People versus George Lucas was to get the fans around the world. I mean, we conducted ourselves 126 interviews. We, we filmed oh. 126 interviews. And then we had over 600 hours of footage submitted to us from fans. And that's, you know, there's one that is completely memorable was this three-hour rant on hi-eight tapes by this gentleman's name was Edward Hines. Okay. It was basically him holding action figures and have them sort of like talk to each other and bicker. And Hmm. it's just the ultimate expression of ultimate fandom, let's just call it that, I guess. That's the kind of stuff that I was really excited about incorporating in the film. The style of the film is that, in a way, it has no style. It could not have any style because there was this collection of footage from all these different sources, all these different formats, from really high end to really low end. And, um, you know, I I would make the film differently now, I think. It's not the one that I prefer, but it certainly struck a major chord with Star Wars fans around the world, yeah. And do you know if George Lucas has ever seen it? I've heard through the grapevine that I think it's pretty clear that he has. Okay. Um, and uh, the sense that I get is that he's not a fan. So. Okay. But I, I'm not really surprised. You know, he was not a fan of uh, Skywalking, you know, the book yeah. by Dale Pollock, which quite frankly is a extremely flattering portrait of him as a, as a filmmaker. Sure. So if he's not a fan of Skywalking, I'm not surprised he's not a fan of the people versus George Lucas. And, you know, it, it, it makes me sad because I think that um, at the end of the day, I think People vs. George is um, it's a love letter to George. But it's also, I think, an important reflection about this idea of the responsibility that you have at a certain point when a work of art becomes a part of our collective consciousness the way that Star Wars is. Right. You know, nobody questions his right to keep making as many different versions as he wants. Yes. But for a guy who went to testify before Congress against the colorization of black and white films and who understands the importance of preserving movies and who understands clearly the importance and the role of the original theatrical cut of Star Wars, the fact that that has not been restored, properly restored, and that, in fact, Lucasfilm, I mean, let's be honest, lied to the fans by, you know, when they when the fans had a petition out and Lucasfilm basically said, we permanently altered the original negatives for the special edition. I'm sorry, not true. Those negatives are somewhere. Right. And that movie needs to be restored. It's extraordinary that the fans have to go and make what we now know as the despecialized edition, that they had to take it upon themselves to restore that film and, yeah. and release it in 4K, you know? Yeah. So um, uh, the example I always use is the Blade Runner 
Blu-ray. You have five versions on it. Right. right. And nobody complains. So George Lucas should know that, you know, if the fans want that, I mean, at the very least do it. And then have all your special editions on top of that. Nobody would complain. There's uh, a band I listen to, Wilco, pretty well-known band. And there's talk in one song about, you know, once it's out there, it's no longer yours, Mm -hmm. right? And because, I mean, people take ownership in things and uh, and certainly in, in Star Wars. Uh, to a certain extent, I do believe in that. You know, I, I, it's, it's tricky because I also believe in copyright, obviously. And, right. and, you know, legally, there's no question that, of course, he, you know, this belongs to him. But, you know, when you talk about film history, there's, there's also such a thing as in sort of ethical or moral rights. And especially it gets really complicated when the movie gets inducted into the uh, Library of Congress and the National Film Registry, which in some many words basically says this movie belongs to our cultural national heritage. Right. (laughs) So it's complicated. It is complicated. You have a couple other earlier films that uh, I I just wanted to ask about the one, and it's about the octopus who could predict the World Cup. That actually came after People vs. George. Oh, it did? Okay. Yeah, that was in between People vs. George and Duck Duck of the the Dead. Dead. Okay. And what inspired you to take on that subject? Well, I was following the World Cup in 2010, and um, they had this, you know, octopus that was predicting the games and um, got them all right. And uh, I remember just... Actually, I watched the final with my editor, okay. uh, Dave Kraling at Milk House, and Paul had predicted that Spain would win against the Netherlands. And, you know, he was seven for seven at that point. And, and I told Dave while we were watching the match that if Spain wins, we're going to have to make a film about this. <laughs> it's a crazy story, you know. And, yeah. and then, yeah, and I sent a letter to the aquarium in Oberhausen where uh, Paul lived at the time because he's deceased now. He's a deceased octopus. I was convinced because he was such a media phenomenon. I mean, you're talking just the soccer world. Right. What, two billion people knew of that octopus, you know? I mean, he was bigger. The tweets about him were getting more hits than Lady Gaga, you know? Yeah. Massive superstar. So I, I was convinced somebody was doing it. I was like, you know, surely the BBC or... But I was like, you know, I'm going to send a letter. I'm going to forget about it. And then two weeks later, I got a response. And it was not from the aquarium, but it was from this address in the UK and this guy called Chris Davis said, hi, I'm Chris Davis. I'm Paul's worldwide agent. (laughs) (laughs) And I read your letter and I'm very intrigued. I've heard about your films and um, let's talk. So I basically said to him, I said, you know, I would love to do this. The only way that I will actually go ahead and do it is if we can have the exclusive story on Paul. So nobody else can do a feature film. And in fact, nobody, I guess, was crazy enough to make a feature film about Paul. There were a lot of short pieces, you know, about him. But I don't think anybody really saw, well, you know, the quite frankly tentacular story around Paul. I mean, it is actually, the film itself is very tentacular. It goes in all these different directions. So structurally, that's kind of how it goes. Yeah. But there's so many stories and so many, you know, from Paddy the Octopus in Ireland to, uh, of course, Punxsutawney Phil, the Groundhog. You know, we, right. uh, we went, to, we experienced Groundhog Day, which was an amazing thing, to all these prognosticating animals. And, and really, the film is very humorous. I think it's my funniest, it's the cutest film that I, <laughs> that I probably will ever make. It also really seriously asks this question, can we, in fact, say that Paul was a psychic? Right. And the fascinating thing about it is that, you know, so we went to talk to some statistics experts. You cannot prove one way or the other. Right. 
whether the, the experts seem to think that he was. The statistics experts believe that he was very lucky. Yeah. So not that he was a psychic. Bookmakers feel that there's no way he couldn't be a psychic. Okay. So different experts have different takes on it. Sure. And then, of course, where the film gets really crazy is we interviewed these two animal communicators. And I had them essentially channel Paul after Paul's death. And pretty much every question they responded literally opposite <laughs> okay. to each other. Yeah. I had to, you know, I played with that a little bit in the edit and it's uh, it not altered, you know, it's yeah. not. And hopefully having fun with them. Sure. But it's, yeah, it's pretty funny. So how long did that film take you from conception to finish? And the reason I'm asking is I want to get an idea of what drives you to spend however many months or years on a project? Uh, I mean, it has to be compel- a compelling enough story to do yeah, that. Yeah, no, so, I mean... It's... So, so this film, how long was the total? That particular one was probably a couple of years. It was super low budget. That was really low budget. But I took advantage, actually, of the film festival tour okay. on People vs. George Lucas, especially all the European stops, so that, you know, Robert, my director of photography came with me and we would take advantage of those stops to go and interview people. You know, we had this like 15,000 mile road trip across Europe. Wow. You know, there was one trip to Russia, which was nuts. And then of course, you know, Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. But yeah, it took about a couple of years to make. It was actually a very sort of therapeutic experience for me. I was going through a divorce at the time. Okay. And I needed to make that film, you know, and it really was a great way for me to go out and and explore something completely incongruous. Alexandre O. Philippe. In conversation with IU Cinema Director John Vickers. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Alexandre O. Philippe is a filmmaker whose work explores the work of other filmmakers. His recent films include 7852 Hitchcock's Shower Scene and Doc of the Dead. Let's talk about now your gravitation to film, films about films. And, and Doc of the Dead is a mix of, so you're exploring zombie phenomena in films, in television, just in our culture, in the big zombie walks. I mean, you're, you're going into a lot of different directions. This film, I don't know if it was commissioned by Epics. It but was, yeah. Okay, so yep. you worked with Epics on it. But this is your kind of first dive into getting closer to what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Have you always been a fan of zombies? Have you been a fan of George Romero's? Uh, What was it that drove you to this project? Yeah, no, I definitely was a fan of zombies. But actually what drove me to the project was still a curiosity linked to pop culture. Okay. And I remember being at the 2009 San Diego Comic-Con. I'd been a few times, but I, I... that year I realized, just looking around, I'm like, there's a lot more zombies here than I've seen before and really more zombies than there should be at a Comic-Con. What's going on? Um, And it was really sort of at the time when zombies for the first time started emerging out of the obscurity of the underground and into the mainstream. That was the impulse. And I think that's, in many ways, this is what 
Dark of the Dead is about. It's about looking at what happened in a very short amount of time that made zombies come out of obscurity and into the mainstream. So that's the premise of the film. That's a great metaphor coming from the underground, right? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> have, do you yeah. use that or have you used I, that? No, yeah. I know. I have not, you know, in retrospect. Yeah. Damn, I should have done that. Yeah. <laughs> you have great interviews in the film with filmmakers, and it's a mix of uh, fans, filmmakers, critics, writers. I mean, it's. I like how you incorporate a lot of different voices and perspectives in the film. And then you, you carry that forward into 7852. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to jump there, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. This is your most successful film to date, I would say. Sure. It premiered at Sundance. It opened with IFC. It's got the attention of a lot of filmmakers. It got mm-hmm. the attention of a lot of festivals and programmers. Mm-hmm. But I love the approach of you're looking at things like a film scholar. Mm-hmm. You're talking to, again, makers, critics, writers, a lot of different voices, And then you're packaging something that's entertaining and accessible, but it still unpacks the language. It unpacks the importance of the Mm -hmm. film. So we heard that you were exposed to Hitchcock at an early age. Why the shower scene? Why this film? Why did you think you could engage an audience based on just one scene? It's very funny. You know, I feel movies choose me. It's not the other way around. Uh, I can't exactly, for instance, remember the first time that I thought about making The People vs. George Lucas. What I do know is that it was a title before it was a film. I can't remember the exact time that I told my partners, Carrie and Robert, that I really wanted to make a film about the shower scene. I just know that it kept tugging at me and eventually you know, wrote a proposal. And In fact, I'd written a proposal for 1752. As we started making Duck of the Dead, and then when Epics came on board, we had to sort of drop that and put it aside for a couple of years, and then I went back to it because it kept calling me. And that's the thing is that when something just calls you enough, you don't question it. I never had once a thought of like, I can't make a film about a scene or or how am I going to make a film about a scene? It was evidence to me that it needed to be made and that that particular scene really is the way to, to really explore Hitchcock. It contains everything you need to know about Hitch. It's his greatest cinematic trick. So I, I just went for it. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's, it sounds oversimplified in a way, but you know, I, I think my challenge was really the reverse one. How do I not make a three-hour film about the shower scene? How do I mm-hmm. keep it to 90 minutes? It is the most, um, you know, on paper, it's the tiniest, most myopic topic that I've ever dealt with, and yet it is the vastest topic. Right. You can lose yourself. And I spent many, many, many months on the screenplay. Just, um, you know, it's a very fine line between what gets just a little too geeky for an audience, you know, where you might just lose them. But, you know, you want to be on that just on that right side of the line where it's, you know, it it has to be geeky. I mean, come on, you know. Uh, but it has to be entertaining, it has to be engaging, and it has to also speak to people who may not even have watched Psycho. That's what makes me happy every time there's a screening of 1752 is there's always people who have never watched Psycho. There's a point in the film where um, there's a taped interview of Alfred Hitchcock that says, he says something about it's all a joke, right? And he really downplays Psycho right. and... and mm-hmm. Of course, there's much more to it than that. And, and I'm glad you included that because I'd never seen that interview. 
but he's downplaying pretty much what you've just made an entire film about, right? right. Um, how do you feel about his comments there? I don't believe for one minute that Hitchcock believed what he said. Right. Um, uh, that's Hitchcock. You know, that's what he does. He plays with the audience, and that's what makes him so masterful is that somehow he finds a way to rope you in. But I think he was clearly very aware that, you know, this was – I think this was a very important film uh, for him. You know, he had to um, prove after Clouseau had done Le Diabolique, you know, and he was being tagged the French Hitchcock, he had to prove to the world that there was only one Hitchcock yeah. and that was him. The fact that he spent seven days shooting that scene, what does that tell you? Right. It could have been six days. It could have been five. I mean, quite frankly, it could have been a day. Right. In fact, nowadays, people would just take a day to do something. You know, they wouldn't have the luxury to have certainly nowhere near seven days. So what it tells me is that he knew he had something on his hands. And in fact, when Truffaut asked him, why did you want to make Psycho? If you listen to the recording, it's just a wonderful moment where you have a few seconds of silence. And then he says, the murder in the bathtub coming out of the blue. That was about all. Wow. In fact, if you look at his handwritten notes in the Margaret Herrick Library, the Academy Library in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. you'll see the outline of the movie sort of sequence by sequence. And then all it says is the murder in caps. Yeah. So that's why he made that film. And it's also a film that really, I think, encapsulates his entire sort of moral universe. You know, this idea that horrible things can happen to good people or, you know, even flawed people who make a, the right decision who don't get necessarily to redeem themselves. Right. It's very upsetting. And I think The Birds is a continuation of that idea. You know, what's so upsetting about The Birds is they just attack. We don't know why. It just is. And we have to sort of deal with that. And nobody's going to explain. So I think that Hitchcock was very, um, I think he knew that he was making a very important film. In fact, if you look at the trailer to Psycho, the extended trailer where he's walking mm -hmm. around the Bates property, and it's wonderful, obviously. But he points to the painting of Suzanne and the Elders. And he says, this painting has great significance because... Yeah. Then he leaves you. And then he leaves you. Yeah. So I obviously went on a journey also to find out why. Why, you know, because when Hitchcock does something like this, he's not just toying with you. He's actually telling you something. He's saying, I yeah. want you to go and find out why I use that. He was such a thoughtful, thoughtful filmmaker. So you get to go on these journeys, right? And these yeah. discoveries when you're making these films. Um, and you get to also then have conversations with great filmmakers when making these films. Mm -hmm. What kind of discoveries did you make either about Hitchcock or about the scene? Or, you know, I, I know probably many, but a couple oh, yeah. about 7852. What are some of the discoveries you made personally? Well, I mean, you know, the obviously Susanna and the Elders, the painting that I just mentioned, that was very much a discovery. But I think the most fun to me was the cassava melon. Hitchcock famously used a particular kind of melon to create the sound of the stabbing. And um, the story goes that this, you know, prop guy just brought a bunch of melons and Hitchcock closed his eyes and they stabbed melon after melon after melon and Hitchcock just said the word cassava. Uh, cassava is a Mexican melon. 
this has been mentioned, but nobody really sort of wondered why the cassava. And I think there's this, you know, normal assumption that, oh, this is Hitchcock being Hitchcock. Well, I felt like maybe that wasn't quite the case. Maybe there's actually a real reason why he used the cassava. So my journey of discovery there was to order 27 varieties of melons in season, which I got to tell you, I've, I've talked to a lot of different markets around the world. It's a very difficult thing to coordinate. And oftentimes these specialty melons, they're, um, you know, you, you can't just get one. You have to get a case. So I think we had about 250 melons on the set. And we stabbed all of those different melons and we recorded each one. And then we sent those sound files to Skywalker Sound, uh, Gary Wrightstrom, who won seven Academy sure. Awards in sound, and uh, Shannon Mills. And I think there's a very – look, I'm not a sound person, but I will tell you this, that to my ear, immediately the cassava sounded different from the other melons. And to have Gary Wrightstrom and Shannon Mills – bag that with their expertise in sound, this is where you go, you know, Hitchcock was really a one-of-a-kind filmmaker because who puts that kind of thought into a detail like this? Right, right. You know, I think most filmmakers, they just pick any melon and let's just do that. Yeah. You know, but it had to be the cassava. Well, the way you break it down in your film is brilliant. And, uh, you know, having Thank the you. Foley artist or whomever's doing the chopping, <laughs> yeah. but it, it works out really well. And, and I'm I'm glad to hear, I forgot about your interview with Gary Rydstrom, um, mm-hmm. that you still have a relationship with Skywalker Sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was actually wondering for a moment. I was like, are they going to let me in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks. And I'm glad that they did. listening to Profiles. From WFIU, our guest is filmmaker Alexandre O. Philippe, whose films include the documentaries 7852, Hitchcock's Shower Scene, Doc of the Dead, and The People vs. George Lucas. He's speaking with John Vickers. A film that we haven't talked about yet is a film in the making, and it's your film about the Exorcist yep. and William Friedkin. It's, it's not about either or, it's about both. You're building a reputation, I think, for this filmmaker's filmmaker, as we've right. dubbed it. Can you share how you connected on The Exorcist Project? And then we'll talk deeper about the film. Sure. I mean, uh, that project is another one. Actually, this is one that it was not at all planned. It came to me on a silver platter, should I say. I was actually at the Sidious Film Festival, that festival I mentioned in Spain, which is uh, an amazing, fantastic film festival, um, in their 50th anniversary. And we were showing 1752, and I was having lunch on one of those little restaurants on the port with Gary Sherman, actually, who uh, did Dead and Buried, uh, Deathline. And as we're having lunch, I hear a voice behind me that goes, Hey, Alex! And I turn around, and it's William Friedkin. <laughs> and, you know, This is one of those moments where you go like, Somebody pinched me. What's going on here? And he said, just, you know, he said, come, up, come over here. I want to tell you some stories about Hitch. Hmm. Of course, you move to the table and you start talking. And he tells me these wonderful stories about Hitchcock because he had worked with him on uh, the final episode of uh, Hitchcock Presents, which he directed. He tells me, you know, I've, I've heard so much about your film. 
you know, I'd love to see it. Please send me a link. So he gives me his email address. I send him the link. He emails me the next day. He says, you know, he absolutely loved it. And he said, uh, when you're in L.A., next time, let me know. I want to buy you lunch. So Nice. <laughs> yeah, right? So we go have lunch. And the story shifts very quickly to The Exorcist. And it's funny because I, I actually – he had rejected me uh, or turned me down, I should say, for an interview for 1752. So at lunch, of course, the first opportunity I got was like, I'm making this film on Alien. I would really like to interview you. And he didn't respond. Okay. But then he pivoted to The Exorcist and basically said, you know, I'm uh, – I mean, talked about all the footage that he shot, especially in Iraq. He was there for three months. And he said, you know, if you ever wanted to look at some of the stuff in my collection, and I'll – give you access and, and I'm like w- w- uh, wait a minute what are you saying like do you want me to do something about the exorcist he said well you know just just read my autobiography and see if you find an angle you know so so of course I get the book yeah. immediately I read it and it's fascinating read uh, fr- the Friedkin connection and and I um, I emailed him and I said look I, I if I were to make a film about the exorcist with your blessing I would want to use the model of interviews that Truffaut did with Hitchcock. And, you know, I'd want to crack this open over a period of days and look at every sequence, every scene, every technique, and just really uh, the deepest dive ever into your craft. And he immediately responded, yes, let's do it. And so I I spent a month watching The Exorcist every day. That was December of last year. And, um, you know, started, you know, I had tons of notes and, interview questions and started organizing that into sessions. And then the following month, I went to his house and we basically had a you know, four-day uh, interview. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the film's taking shape now. The film is, yeah, we're actually cutting. Uh, the first step that we're doing right now is we're cutting. I don't call it a sizzle because it's really going to play like a short film to give a real sense of what it's going to be like. And then that's what we're going to take to investors. And I feel really, really confident about it. I think it's going to be the best thing that I've ever made. It, it already is, in my mind, the best thing that I've ever made because I, I just knowing the content. And what I love about it is that it's just him. Yeah. You know, and he offered, you know, he said, do you want to talk to Linda Blair? Do you want to talk to Alain Burstyn, Max von Sydow? And, and of course, I would, I would absolutely love to meet those people and talk to them. But this, this is not this kind of film. Th- yeah. This is really Billy Friedkin. And, and each day we actually shot with three cameras, with one camera on a slider, and changed the angles each day. So it'll basically look like a 12-camera shoot okay. on, on Friedkin. And then, of course, a wealth of footage and stills. And, you know, I'm going to start digging into his personal collection, at, which he donated to the um, – the Herrick Library, and there's you know, thousands of stills and you know, wow. so much stuff to look at. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love the approach of uh, one film, one filmmaker, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially if you're looking at master filmmakers, uh, mm-hmm. trying to cover a career in 90 minutes or two hours or three hours yeah. is almost impossible. And yeah. I look forward, you know. Thank you. To, yeah. To I mean, this. and, you know, I, as a result of that process, what's been so cool to me is that I think there's a, a William Friedkin that started emerging that I don't think people know. Okay, It's a very different William Friedkin than the one you you know about, than the one who even wrote his autobiography. It's much more nuanced. It's the Friedkin who will talk for two hours about not being sure 
that he did the right thing with the scene of Feather Karras throwing himself out the window. It's the William Friedkin who says he every time he goes to Chicago, he goes and spends hours, you know, in front of that Monet painting and mm-hmm. uh, the Giverny painting because this very soft, almost abstract colors. It's the William Friedkin who teared up talking about his experience at the Kyoto Zen Gardens. So this is really, I think, a, it's a special film. I think it's the kind of portrait of a filmmaker and of his craft that really uh, hasn't been done, certainly not about him, and I'm um, really excited to do it. It sounds fascinating, and it sounds also like you really earned his trust and he opened up to you. Yeah, no, I mean, he uh, he even let me take for a day his Bible, you know, his book, which is, you know, when Blatty had, um, you know, who wrote The Exorcist, the book, uh, wrote the screenplay, freaking rejected it, and he took his own, you know, hardcover copy of the book and started basically making notes and cutting scenes and adding stuff. And, you know, so he has this hardcover, which is really The Exorcist Bible. It has the first version of the film as he saw it in his head. And, um, you know, when I said I would love to take some scans, he's like, well, I'll just, you know, take it home with you and bring it back to me. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. it's the kind of, you know, I was pretty freaked out for 24 hours because, like, you know, anything happens. Anything happens. You get into a car accident. Or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's an invaluable piece of movie history. And so I, I you know, I slept with it. And I uh, woke up the next day. It was like 6 in the morning. And I just remember just leafing through these pages and thinking, you know, how – how did I get here? You know, like this is where your mind goes back to, you know, being a kid in Switzerland, watching those films as a kid and dreaming about them and not even thinking one about being a filmmaker, let alone meeting those people, let alone having those people come to you and say, hey, make a film about, you know, it's really crazy. I still don't really understand how this happens. But there's there's something about Friedkin that... um, it's very strange. And he actually told me, you know, because I told him this whole story of how strange this was to me, you know. Sure. And, and and he said, you know, he said it's fate. He said everything about The Exorcist has been fate. And, you know, the fact that he came to me like this, he, he feels very much is, is that, you know. Wow. But I have these moments. There are things about him that his mannerisms, his body language that remind me of my dad. There have been these really strange moments when, uh, you know, because, again, we spent four days and I see him quite regularly now. And these moments when, you know, we're sitting across from each other and I have these just brief moments like, oh, my gosh, I just saw my dad. Uh, It's very strange. You know, so I I feel I have a connection to him that's very, um, you know, it's not fatherly or anything. I mean, I don't know him that well, but he's a very special man, you know, and and I I, – to be able to get into his mind in this particular way and to have him open up and to talk about things that I know he's never talked about. I mean, there's several things that he said about The Exorcist, which I can tell you, which will be in the film, but he said he's never told anybody. Wow. Um, I, I I have no words, you know. Yeah. It's, that's it's wonderful. That's yeah. amazing access. And before you told me that, um, I, I just got chills thinking of this, that mm. I was going to say, wouldn't your dad be proud of you, you know, having this chance with one of your heroes? And yeah, no, I, I – uh, and this is where, you know, this is where if I, if I get into this whole sort of idea about fate, which, you know, Friedkin says, and I love this quote, you know, he says, everything in life is about the mystery of faith or the mystery of fate, hmm. which is it's pretty profound. And, you know, when, when I think about 
I could have been in any of those 20 restaurants in Sijis and missed him. And it had to happen this way. It was not meant to be, and yet somehow it was meant to be. And to have him say it was fate, you know, and to have these weird flashes of my dad when I'm talking to him, it's really hard for your mind to not go, there's more here than just meets the eye. And I don't know what that is. You know, I don't want to rush. You know, to me, the beauty of it is not knowing. But I do feel that energetically, there's really something that happened with this particular project. And just looking at the results of the the kind of stuff that he gave me, I can tell that it's going to be a very, very special film. There's no question about it. So, you know, whether it's true that my dad is looking over me or whether that's not true, I don't know. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he'd be pretty amazed, I think. But I think he'd be pretty proud, yeah. I hope that you get other opportunities with other heroes of yours. I hope to... so, too. I, you know, I, I definitely have many other ideas and many other films to crack open and, sure. and heroes to, you know, uh, just pick their brains. And hopefully this is really the beginning now of a new phase for me as a filmmaker. So, And if we get the opportunity to learn more about these artists in, mm. in a personal way that it sounds like you just have. Um, yeah. You know, how great is that for all of us? And and so, yeah, thank you for... Well, I, I'm going to try. I'm going to do my best to do as much of that as I can. You know, if I can sort of really focus my the rest of my career and hopefully another, whatever, 40 years or more, <laughs> I would be very happy if that's my legacy. Well, Alexander Philippe, thank you for joining thank us you. on Profiles. Thank you. Alexandre O. Philippe, a filmmaker's filmmaker. His explorations of cinema and popular culture include The People vs. George Lucas, Doc of the Dead, and 7852 Hitchcock's Shower Scene. Alexandre O. Philippe was recently in Bloomington for screenings of his recent films and for a masterclass on the filmmaking techniques of Alfred Hitchcock. He's been speaking with IU Cinema Director John Bickers. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.